Welcome to another episode of the Badass Women of Central Park, where every time we bring you an awesome journey of a badass woman in our neighborhood. My name is Dan Clark, and it is my honor to host this podcast and get to learn from so many of you each time. It is my goal for you to see yourself as the badass you truly are. If you would do me a favor, and when you're done listening to this, leave a nice message for Sarah on our Facebook group or just DM her directly. That kind of encouragement goes such a long way. This episode features the badass Sarah Cox. She is the lead clinical social worker on the Vulnerable Elder Services Protection and Advocacy Team, VESPA, at the University Hospital in Aurora, Colorado. Sarah grew up in New York City and got her undergraduate degree from Brown University. She attended the University of Denver, DU, Graduate School of Social Work and received her master's in social work with an emphasis in geriatrics and a certification in animal-assisted social work. At DU, Sarah was a recipient of the John A. Hartford Foundation Progress Scholarship, a leadership training program in geriatric social work. Sarah has over a decade of experience working with older adults and their caregivers. That experience includes interdisciplinary team management, coordinating care in the community, assisted living and long-term care placement, end-of-life care coordination and support, and mental health support for older adults and their caregivers. Sarah currently resides in Central Park with her husband, three girls, and their two pups. This podcast is brought to you by Mama Bird Interviews and the Mama Bird Project, where we empower and open doors for young Black, Latina, and Indigenous women from Montbello through recording conversations with your loved ones. Currently, we just dropped our prices to only $100 per recorded conversation. Want to make a difference? Help support Mama Bird. Like the interviews for Mama Bird focus on highlighting stories of not just your elders, but of yourself in that moment of what you believe in, um, what, you, what you like, what you don't like, like your favorite memories. Okay, good morning, Sarah. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, you have reached out to me before this and said you're really nervous, but you want to impact and share your story because you think it can help other people or at least one other person out there. If it makes that difference, then you'll be, uh, it'll be worth it for you. So I appreciate you putting yourself out there. And hopefully as you tell me your story and all the people listening your story, you'll realize um, what a badass you are. So I guess let's start with that. I, I don't always throw it in there. Do you see yourself at this moment as the badass you are? <laughs> oh, we're starting there. Okay. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you for having me. It's very kind of you. Um, I don't know. I think some days I do and some days I, some days I don't. Um, I know that <sighs> there's been a lot of challenges in life as I mean, I think we all face challenges and um, and I think that I, because I've chosen to find joy in life and, and live and, and enjoy every day, I think that that's a badass move. <laughs> and you told um, me you, you have three girls and parenting and mothering in general, I think is just obviously badass work and, and so challenging in so many ways. Another thing you told me briefly before we started here, which I thought was so interesting, is the interesting is that you grew up in New York and you you said Quaker school. Can you explain to me what that was like and kind of <laughs> go take us back there because I have no idea what that world is like. Yeah, um, I grew up in New York City um, in a place called Stuyvesant Town, which is uh, at the time was like uh, housing for middle class. A lot of my neighbors were firemen and police officers. Um, and I went to a small private school. 
um, in downtown Manhattan called Friends Seminary, which is a Quaker school. Um, in pure New York fashion, it was mostly, most of my friends were Jewish um, <laughs> who went there. I think it was kind of, my parents were a little hippie dippy. And um, I think it was the alternative to, certainly an alternative to public school, which at the time in New York was really rough. Um, and my parents um, definitely financially, you know, um, sacrificed to to send me to the school um, as well as my brother. Um, but it was an alternative to, I think, like the traditional Catholic school, um, much more um, probably liberal minded and and um, and uh, and they had a great program where a lot of the kids there were on scholarships. So you had a, a very um, not just like, you know, a diverse group of racially and ethnically, just because that comes with New York, but um, but also like socioeconomically diverse environment. I think I am just thinking as of my own ignorance as you're saying this is I'm equating like Quaker with um, Amish. <laughs> it's not, that, not so the, many not people do that. That is so funny. What is, um, what is, explain I get what that a lot. Um, I am not a Quaker, so I'm not going to be the expert on it, but um, it is a, you know, branch of Christian religion and it is a very open-minded kind of, <sighs> the best way I can think to describe it is like a Quaker wedding. Um, I did attend one um, as a kid and there is no priest or minister. There's no one kind of speaking to the crowd. Um, the idea is that God is in everyone. And so um, everyone has a voice. And so actually when you get married in a Quaker ceremony, you end up just staring at each other for an hour and anyone in the congregation can get up and um, say something. The only rule in any like Quaker meeting, I mean, there are silent meetings. So you sit in silence. And I did that every day for 14 years. <laughs> um, I never thought I'd miss it, but I do now, especially with three children. Um, but the idea is to sit there and be one with yourself and with others and, um, I, and with God, I suppose, um, as well. I'm not very religious, so it's very hard for me to um, say that. But um, people can get up and say what's on their mind. And the only rule is that no one can argue with anyone else or comment on anyone else's, you know, that it's a, a place to freely speak without being challenged um, or questioned. Well, that does sound beautiful. Yeah, I'm, I'm a person, not, full disclosure, not religious either, but the beautiful parts and the best parts of religion, if we could just take those parts and, and put them together, the world would right. probably be a, a wonderful place. All right, so take me there from there to getting into your career in social work. How did that happen? Was it always a calling for you or, or how did you get into that? Yeah, um, I mean, I think I, 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 I went to, when I went to college, I majored in architectural history. <laughs> and just cause I, I loved architecture. Um, and, uh, and then after I graduated, I ended up working for an architect in New York City for a while. Um, and then just felt like I could not make things work in New York financially. It was just so hard um, to afford to live there and work there. And um, so I packed up my car, um, a bed, a bag of clothes, and um, started driving. <laughs> Didn't know where I was headed. Um, ended up in like a cornfield at a coffee shop. Um, this New York City girl who, I mean, I had traveled before, but 
man, I was out of my element. And um, I went online and found an ad for a roommate <laughs> on denverpost.com. And it was like a month to month. And I thought, I'll just land there for a little while. I'll ski um, and see what happens. And um, I moved in with these two wonderful um, young men um, who were also starting out. And um, I ended up marrying one of them, actually, <laughs> which is why I stayed here. Um, but I worked in finance in Denver for a while, um, doing small loans for people. Um, it was never my passion. It paid the bills. But I noticed quickly that um, people's credit bureaus were like a window into their personal life. Um, many of the bankruptcies I saw were based on like a severe illness in the family or a death um, or some, you know, someone lost their job. Um, you could kind of map out tragedy within these credit bureaus. And, um, and I thought, I want to, I want to be on the other side of that. I want to help people with the challenges of life. Um, I want to, I, I don't want to just be counseling them on their finances. And unfortunately, when, when your credit is damaged that much, sometimes you can't help them. And, um, and so I decided to go to social work school and become a social worker. So I want to point out things throughout this conversation that you've done that are badass and leaving out on your own and driving west is certainly, certainly one of them. Um, and I also think for me, my career has, I was in business and industry. I did design and sold custom furniture as kind of my first career um, before I got an education. And for me, that first career was so valuable for my career in education because education being a teacher is so damn difficult and relentless and unappreciated and all these things. But I had this other experience before that least made, least made me realize that there's other negatives about other jobs too. And it's not all perfect in any profession. Do you think that was good that you had another kind of career before you got into social work? Because I know it's such a hard industry to be in. Absolutely. I mean, I think I always say um, being a waitress and or a waiter, excuse me, and um, and a and a bartender, which is something I did for a long time to to make ends meet, um, taught me how to deal with different kinds of people, taught me how to communicate with people, taught me how to um, provide good customer service to connect with people. Um, it was, I still think it's one of the most valuable experiences I've had, um, moving into my career as a social worker. And then social work is another, um, term. I'm you know, just, you know, confess my ignorance all over the place here. And that's another yeah. thing that I want women to, women to hear is how little I know I've got a doctoral degree. I've had many successes in life, but I still know so little social work. Can you explain to me? I'm sure it's a very broad profession what kind of different things does social work encompass and what did you do specifically um so you know a lot of it is dealing with people and learning how to communicate um we have strong values around um the value in every person um uh you know we're we're trained to um help facilitate conversation. We're trained as listeners. Um, so a lot of social workers end up working in schools. Um, they end up working, um, it, some of them end up in the corporate world, helping with you know collaboration, communication, facilitation. Um, 
you know, a lot of them end up as therapists. Um, we get a background in mental health as well. Um, you know, it's about community outreach. It's about policy change. Some some social workers go into policy. I don't know much about politics, but that is a social work branch. Um, I very early on decided I wanted to work with older adults. Um, you know, you mentioned before we started filming that um, you um, were looking at doing these one-on-one -on -one interviews, um, learning about history and, and so forth. Um, I, I That's part of what inspired me is that I got to know I, I, my grandparents were a big part of my life. That sounds really cheesy, but it's true. That was part of it. But getting to know their friends and taking the time to interview and learn more about them. And there's so much, so much experience. And um, there's something so fascinating about someone in their older life who, um, you know, knows they're close to the end of their life, knows that most of their life is behind them and the perspective they have on life because of that is always very interesting to me. There's just so much to learn. Um, I also always notice that our society doesn't value them as I believe they should. And, um, and that always fascinated, fascinated me and I couldn't understand why. So I knew when I started social work, that was likely where I was gonna end up. But then when I ended up in my master's program, I was like the only one who wanted to work in, with older adults. And that, you know, because of the values of social work that we work with, you know, underprivileged communities and, and people, and, and that is our job to be the voice for those that, you know, don't have a voice of their own or, or need um, support. Um, why wasn't anyone focusing on this group of people that obviously need our support? Um, yeah, I think it's it's so societal and American society in general definitely and probably most value youth in, in such a drastic way, certainly in America. And it's been interesting with us living in Poland now, even my wife, who is also an American citizen, the way she interacts even with elders here, because culturally, you absolutely respect your elders in Poland and you're doing extra things for them. And you also see them in society. So everybody walks around a town of 25,000 people the older generation doesn't drive at all. So they're walking everywhere and you're seeing them and interacting with people. Whereas in America, you, you don't really as much unless you're seeking that out. So that may be part of it too. Um, and so then when you did show interest in this area, then did that give you a lot of options and how your career would go because there weren't people in that, in that space? It did, it wasn't my intention, but it was an, a huge advantage. Um, I ended up getting a scholarship through the John Hartford Foundation. They paid for my second year of school. Um, so that I could focus in geriatrics. Um, it was an amazing scholarship that allowed me more hours in the field um, and a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had just in the basic program that was offered. At, uh, I was at DU, um, Graduate School of Social Work. Um, and that internship, the internship that I ended up in was the one I ended up getting hired to work at after I uh, graduated. And when you were doing that, this was before, were your parents at that time aging or was that on your horizon that you'd be kind of learning on how to help them better? Or was like, where were, where were you at? Or do you just discover this because your grandparents? What, I guess, go back and give me more about how you really um, felt your calling with working with older people. Because I do think that 
you're exactly right when you talk about there's like uh, no bullshit with with people right when they're when they're there they can be exactly who them they are which can be good and bad but mostly yeah. good and there's just a wisdom that comes with that because they know they don't need to fluff anything for you yeah no i mean at the time my parents were thriving and um and living it up in new york city um they loved the lifestyle of new york and i think becoming empty nesters you know, made it even more wonderful for them, the theater and the museums and all the wonderful things that New York offers. Um, and they were both thriving in their careers as well. Um, I, my grandparents were also thriving at the time. Um, and and um, I think it was more, I think I've always connected with older adults. I think it's just always, um, I, you know, we moved to Central Park and our neighbors were grandparents that had moved to the neighborhood to be near their grandchildren. And they are some of my dearest friends. Um, I've just always really appreciated the insight and experience that that generation has to offer. It's always been, um, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of a dork because a lot of my friends are, <laughs> I don't know, a lot older than me, but um, it just jives for me, so. Wonderful. And so then what kind of work when you started getting into your actual career with social work, what kind of work were you doing and, and how did that, was it as you, you did the internship, so it was probably a natural transition to that. Tell me a little bit about your career in social work. Yeah. So I started out um, with a place called Total Long-Term Care that um, later became Innovage, um, which you may see their buses driving around Denver. Um, so their, their mission at the time, and they've changed a lot since then, so I can't speak too much of where they are now, but um, was to keep older adults in their community as long as possible and support them in their community. Um, so it was kind of an all-inclusive care model where we, you know, as a social worker, I facilitated all the different um, uh, services that we provided. We did medical care, dental care, um, maid service in the home, um, you know, medication uh, management, you know, in-home nurses, in-home CNAs. So anything, any sort of su supports that we could provide um, to further support people in their home. Um, and it, it really wasn't an alternative to nursing home care. I, it, that Unfortunately, resources out there, I think you get to a level where that becomes a necessity, but we really did prolong institutionalized care as long as possible um, and kept people in their community as long as possible. Yeah. One, one thing that I've noticed also about coming to Poland and this, we've been married for 15 years now this December and my first time here, which was 16 years ago, I, I realized right away there was not any like nursing homes here and we're living in an apartment block that's five stories high and you're walking up these things and I asked my wife like what did, what happens when you get old here and she said your family takes care of you which I'm sure is true of most cultures around the world your family takes care of you but then I'm like well where do you how do you deal with five stories with no elevators and says you don't leave the house and so I romanticize a lot of the way it is here but but I see the the advantages in so many ways with America and one of those is that yeah if you could stay in your if you can stay in your home in a way that's still healthy for you and, and thriving, we're so independent, we wanna be so independent. So that's part of it too. Um, but yeah, the programs like that are amazing. And I guess after a certain point too, when healthcare gets figured out when you're of that age, so that's, that helps with it too. But like dental stuff, I never thought about that. 
Um, and so that's, that's interesting to see. And I'm seeing it coming here more too. They're definitely westernizing where people live in the suburbs and I'm sure there will be nursing homes in the future here as we get, because I think that's part of the thing in America too, is we definitely prioritize ourselves and are told to kind of individualism, rugged individualism. And even my parents, like my mom doesn't want to be a burden to me. We're here, you know, just don't even think that way because you're expecting to be doing this part. Right. Did you get that a lot with the people you're dealing with? Do they not want your help because they want to be so independent? Or are they pretty welcoming at that state? No, I think they, you know, we're empowering them to um, have the independence that they so want, that whatever physical or um, emotional um, disability has prevented them from having. So I, or, so I think most people were very open to our help. Um, and, um, I, and it really was, I mean, a lot of the folks I worked with didn't have family or family was far away. So this was the option to be able to stay in your home. I mean, we did every, I mean, we did everything from supporting, you know, folks with, um, you know, pets, like companion animals, like, you know, this is part of what's important to them. So how can we help them keep their dog in their home or, um, I mean, these are all important things and looking at the whole picture, um, I think was, it was a really wonderful place to start out. Um, yeah. And so has your path in the field been really winding? Did you, where, where are you at now versus where you were then? <clears throat> yeah, so um, I, I think having children kind of changed the, you know, changed things a lot for me, um, needing things that were more flexible um, so I ended up doing, um, some more kind of contract work where I would go into nursing homes and assisted living facilities and provide, um, mental health, uh, support. Um, and then eventually went into my own practice, um, which was interesting. I, my focus was on, um, older adult mental health and caregiver stress, um, caregivers, um, I think it's one of the hardest job jobs in the world. And I wish I've always <laughs> said um, that a doctor should ask you at your, you know, annual visit if you're a caregiver, because I think it does affect your mental and physical health. Um, and caregivers are people who usually put the other person first. They don't put themselves first, which is a recipe for disaster. I've always said, put yourself first and then you can, act, you know, better care for the people around you. Um, that what was difficult about having, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I, 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 I got to stop you there because I need to know how yeah. the hell do you do that? I think that so many women, especially certainly put themselves first or put everyone else first because they have to. I'm thinking of my wife right now. I told you before this, I'm a little sick. And when I'm sick, I'm like, can't do anything in life. Um, and she doesn't get sick because I don't know how that works. So she doesn't let herself, but, but always puts everyone else before her. And thinks that way. And I love the analogy of putting the oxygen mask on yourself before your kids, um, even. But like, how 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 do you you say it? Can you do it? Yeah, I, it's really hard. I don't think we're any of us are very good at it. Uh, certainly not all the time. Um, I, I definitely see part of my job is reminding people of that and that it's okay to put yourself first. I I don't think you know the idea is that if you're caring for yourself if you're taking good care of yourself, then you're in a better state to take care of others. And um, it's very hard for people to do that. But um, 
But sometimes I can be that person in someone's ear saying, not only should you do it, but it's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you're doing everyone a favor and taking care of yourself first. Um, sometimes people just need permission and support um, and reminders that, you know, the things that, you know, we think are selfish or, or wrong. Um, I mean, aren't you doing that when you remind people that they're a badass? <laughs> I mean, you're, you know, you, words are important and how you, you know, reminding people to um, value themselves is important. And I think like pouring out of the empty cup, I love that analogy too, is, is in order for you to be putting all this good and all these things into the world, you need to take care of yourself first to be able to do that. Um, and maybe that's part of what you're providing too, is the kind of accountability part of, are you doing this and, and reminding people of that? Um, so I kind of derailed you from your career path. Take us back yeah. to, to where, where you're at with that. So I did that for a while to support also being there for my kids as much as I could. And it allowed me to make my own schedule and, um, and it worked until it wasn't my favorite job. Um, it was very lonely and I did make a lot of efforts to, you know, it's important to keep ourselves in check. And, you know, if I'm providing support to others to get uh, support from my colleagues and, and work through problems and get other people's ideas, but also make sure that I'm doing the job. You know, it's a big responsibility to be a support for someone else. And so um, taking that very seriously and always being in contact with my colleagues, but it was also a very lonely job um, and didn't really feed me. Um, I loved being in the community at Innovage and going out to people's homes and um, getting to know these people in, in a, in a big way and, and, I, with a lack of a better way of saying it, like kind of being on that, the front lines. Um, and so, um, well, then the pandemic hit, and I, everything kind of got dissolved and, excuse me. Um, and I stayed home with my kids and we did a lot of um, virtual learning. Um, I have a child who's medically complex, so it was especially isolating for us. Um, not knowing, you know, how she would do if she got COVID. Um, and so I came out of that feeling like, oh my God, my career's dead. Like it's gone. I've lost it. And, um, and I suspect this is what a lot of moms who choose to stay home with their kids maybe feel like. Um, I watched, you know, I wanted to be the one that stayed home, but I watched my husband's career take off and mine stall and it was really hard and I didn't think I realized how much of what I did was a part of my identity until then um it was I, I thought about just giving up on social work altogether and starting fresh I think because it scared me so much how it had all just kind of disappeared um that was that was tough um and then this job came about um I had a colleague email me about a position at a physician's office. They needed a social worker like once, once a week. Um, and I had emailed them and we talked a little bit and she said, well, I know somebody who's hiring for this elder abuse team. 
at the University of Colorado and I'd like to connect you. So I ended up talking to the doctor, one of the doctors on that team and they wanted me to work full time. And I said, you know, I'm just not ready for that yet. Um, I, now I have this surprise toddler. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, let me let me reach out to all the geriatric social workers I know who are, there aren't many of them and, um, and see if any of them would be interested. And I kind of reached out to a bunch of colleagues who I thought might be interested in this position. And a few months later, the doctor got back to me and said, you know, I've been talking to my team and we'd like to interview you and we'll consider a part-time position. And so I said, okay. And, you know, you kind of just like get on the ride and you can't get off, you know, like, I don't know what possessed me to like continue with this, but it definitely intrigued me. Um, I mean, it sounded like a wonderful job. I was just terrified. Um, maybe because I'd been at home with my kids for two years. I don't know, but, um, ended up getting the job and, um, it has been life-changing. It's just, I feel like I have my life back. I feel like I'm doing something important. Um, I feel like I'm in part of something that is important. And, um, and I'm working with people who are very passionate about what they do. Um, and, uh, and honestly, like want to change the world. And it's like inspiring to be a part of it. Um, it's hard work, but it's, um, it's been amazing. As it's interesting to me that you talked about how, and it wasn't a long period of time, but you thought that you wouldn't be accepted back in the world, your time out of the, the work, which my mind just doesn't even process that at all. I feel that, and again, I think it's a huge privilege thing. And I think it's a American male thing, certainly American white male thing that I feel, no, I could go back at any time into whatever part of my career and be fine and find people in that capacity. And if people don't want me, then it's their loss and I'll go to the next person who does want me and find the right fit. And that's part of the destiny thing too. Um, and I've got a couple more badass points for you. And, and so you can not ever have that, you know, those questions again. So you drove out West, you um, chose a direction that no one else wanted to do, which is pretty badass, right? Going against the brain and social work. At one point you started your own practice. You're having three kids during all this time. And now you had a, someone specifically pushing, you're trying to give them other people and they didn't want them, they wanted you. So they, they're specifically designing this job around you and it was the right fit. So it was amazing. And so now you're in a, in a really good position. And I see that too, just with myself as I'm reflecting. Um, women don't get to identify themselves or their careers, I think in the same way as men, because they're forced to kind of, you're, you're a mother first beyond these things, which is, which is I'm sure the case in all of this. And I'm consider myself a parent first too, but men kind of get to live both those dreams so often. Um, as you reflect back on all this, what, one of the things I guess I would say too is I, I'm sure if your daughters came to you in that same situation and said they wouldn't be able to go back in the same field or they're thinking about quitting, you'd probably have better advice for them than you'd have for yourself and all of that too. As you, as you reflect on that person, now that you find a really good place with yourself, can you see kind of where you got that doubt from or where that comes from in that situation? Um. I don't know. I, I, um, I think that, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where the doubt came from. I, I think it was, I think because we were so isolated as a family during that time and, and very scared for my daughter, um, who I, you know, my, my, my oldest daughter almost died a few years ago from this autoimmune disease. Um, I'd been there. I'd been in that moment of, I'm going to lose my child. 
And um, so when the pandemic hit, I could not go back to that place again. And so it created, I mean, we all suffered because of it. Um, all my children did um, because we were trying to protect my oldest. And um, it was it was a difficult time, I think, because it was a, a, a such a hard time. I think the other things suffered, like my confidence as well. Oh my gosh. And I, I forget how scary it was at the start of the pandemic, certainly too. And I always think for, for me, the pandemic, again, from a position of privilege and having children without those same issues, we got to spend more time as a family. We were isolated, but they were at young enough ages where they weren't aware that it was unique and we had great times together. And I definitely, we were so isolated during that time and don't see that other side of it. So not to bring down the parade even more, but we, we wanted to talk about your experience with your mother going through all of this too so is that at yeah. the same time that this happened when did you yeah. lose her well I want to go back to what you just said I want to thank you for bringing that up because I I did there were so many beautiful things about being together as a family and I miss that now um there was joy there too um and I didn't mean to make it all sound so dark but um it was challenging as well just the fear um and um yeah so you were asking me about my mom. So my father passed away about 10 years ago, very suddenly. I was not prepared for that at all. Um, and um, strangely, he always used to tell me he was going to die young. I, he, so he knew. And, and, and when it happened, I was like, gosh, you knew. Um, but I was not prepared <laughs> for it. Um, but I think what was the most challenging, besides the grief and the loss, of course, is that all of a sudden my mother was alone and I didn't know what to do to help her. Um, and, um, and my parents were very in love and they were very emotionally dependent on each other. And um, my mother, especially, I think. And um, I knew that I, if anything was going to become like an emotional caregiver for my mother and take on a new role with her. And I did, I mean, we ended up leaving Colorado for a year and moving back East, the whole family just to be close to her um, during that time. I don't think that was the right thing to do looking back, um, but I felt such a responsibility for her and I didn't know how I was going to be able to help her. Um, and it was a lot, it was a lot of work being there for my mother. Um, I didn't, I don't mean to say that it was, hard, you know, bad, but it was a lot. And it just adds another layer to all the folks you're already, you know, who are already emotionally dependent on you. Um, I mean, I was lucky enough that I didn't have to physically care for her um, at the time she was healthy when my father died. A few years later, my mother got diagnosed with a form of ALS. Um, and it was a very slow progression. Um, so there were many years where she managed. Um, at one point she did move out here um, to live with us um, and just felt like Colorado was not her thing and New York City was where she belonged. So we facilitated her moving back to New York City. Um, my father had planned very well for both of them and so you know, as she got sicker, we were able to hire caregivers um, and keep her in her home, which is what she wanted. And she had a lot of 
wonderful friends who were there for her. Uh, my brother lived with her for a long time. Um, but I was always the emotional support. Um, oh, I'm sorry. And um, <laughs> so um, just this past year, we, well, I should go back a little bit. Several years ago, I, so I had worked in, I had done a small, a short stint in hospice. I ended up leaving hospice because my father died. Um, and um, at the time, it just felt like I was too enmeshed in my own stuff that I, it was going to affect how I supported other families. And it didn't feel like that was a responsible thing to do. So I, I decided that was the time to leave. Um, but I had seen a lot of people choose. Um, so in some states, you know, in, in, in Colorado being one of them, you can, there is, I, they call it assisted suicide. I don't like the name, but um, you, can, you can end your own life. Um, in New York state, there is no law like that, um, but there is something called um, voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. Um, I've seen a lot of death in my work. Um, I, a lot, most people when they're dying just end up stop, they, they just stop eating and drinking. It's kind of a natural progression of death. Um, and I should say, I always forget to say this, this is tough stuff. I'm just <laughs> give a little premise, like this is tough stuff. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that, um, for those that are listening, but, um, so I mentioned it to my mother because we all know where ALS leads. And I said, mom, I just want you to know that there is this thing and there's a documentary about it and there's books about it. And it's just one way that you can empower yourself as things go forward. And I didn't think that the conversation even took, but at the beginning of this year, maybe January, she, she called me up and said, I, I'm, I'm ready to go. Um, she had basically lost the ability to walk. She was losing control of her neck. She was having swallowing issues um, and she was losing the ability to talk, which was especially difficult for her. She, she would say to me, if I can't communicate and I can't talk to you, then I don't want to be around anymore. Um, and so we just started talking about it and what it would look like. And um, she asked me to be the one to do it with her, um, to help her and advocate for her during that time. Um, and she started to say goodbye to her friends and um, family. And then in August, I went to New York and I spent several weeks there with her. And she, um, stopping eating was not an issue for her. Eating had not been pleasurable for her for a long time. Um, started stopping drinking was hard. Um, and so she, at the end, chose when it would end. And she was very clear about what she wanted. And I think it really empowered her in a moment where she had lost control of so much. Um, and it was so hard. But I'm so thankful for the experience I've had professionally where I have been able to see people die many times. I see the beauty in death. I think our society is terrified of death. <laughs> and um, I'm not. Um, 
it's not terrifying. It's beautiful. And there's a lot of choice in death. Um, I've seen people hold on till Christmas and then die the next day. I've, I've, I've seen people in their last moments in this, in these peaceful states. Um, of course, death isn't always peaceful, but in moments where people choose death, I, I think it can be. Um, I watched my father after his stroke. He, he had a horrible stroke that led to his death, but I watched him in the last few days decide that he was not going to go on. Um, and that, and we all gave him permission, you know, we'll be okay. It's okay for you to go. Um, and he did. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful for the experience I've had because I not only was able, I believe to give my mother this gift of knowing that she had power and how she was going to go and that she was no longer, she did not want a feeding tube. She did not want to lose her voice, that this was, this is where she wanted it to end. Um, but also that I was not scared to hold her hand while she died in front of me because I had been there before. Thank you for sharing that and being so vulnerable. Um, I lost both my, I've been very, very lucky with health of my family and my dad's the oldest of 11 kids and they're all still alive. Um, but he's now the oldest Clark male ever at 75. Um, and I'm still so unaware of all these things coming down the road and, and, and should be having conversations that this makes me think I should be having to make sure I know exactly where he, how he wants to be treating all these different scenarios, which are so difficult. But I think the earlier you have these conversations, probably the easier it is. And, and we all should be having them, um, but they're d difficult to face. Um, but I lost both my grandmothers in one week, um, in the same week, right when we moved to Denver, which was about 12 or 13 years ago now. And one of them had dementia, pretty severe dementia for the last three years of her life. And the other one died of a stroke kind of instantly. And that was very interesting for me to go through it too, just seeing the my grandmother who had the dementia would not have more, really wanted to live on that long. She did not want, and I think even told her kids, I do not want to be, if I don't recognize who you are, I do not want to be alive. However, she still seemed happy in these moments, but it ended up that she passed the same way with um, cutting out food and, and water, and it was relatively peaceful. And it's always so shocking to me, though, that as a society, we, we're so good with dogs and animals, right? We treat them so well, and we make sure if they're in any pain, then we we do this and as uh, you know, help them pass in as peaceful a way as possible. We don't treat people the same way. And I know it's getting more to that state, but um, I appreciate you sharing all of that and that, that talk because I think that will be helpful to people. Um, what other lessons did you learn from that experience about her? Was she, you said the communication was down. Was there things she was sharing you towards the end of life that were different than things she'd shared with you in the past? Did it bring you closer together as you feel? Because I also feel so much of your life moving forward after death, and certainly from a non-religious standpoint, it's more about the person who carries on living and that you're living without a lack of regret that you could have if you deal with different situations. And so I think there's so much peace in that too, is I had this option and I did the right thing and I did a good thing in this scenario. Um, I guess that's a lot of different things I'm, I'm asking you, but were, 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 there, were there different conversations that you had as she was passing as she could be so open and honest or, and also kind of what did you learn about yourself throughout the process and moving forward, how that keeps you at peace? Yeah, um, I think, you know, my mother and I've had an interesting relationship. It always, it hasn't always been easy. Um, I, I mean, I was honestly much closer with my father and so I didn't always fully understand her. And I think part of the reason that I 
you know, took off for Denver and in my car, not really knowing where I was going and did all these kind of outlandish things. I moved to Australia for a year by myself, just out of nowhere. Um, is that my mother, I saw a woman who was very dependent on her husband and I, and I didn't want to be that. Um, and so when, after my father died and I was providing, I mean, God, she killed me for telling the story, but, um, she, the day after my father passed, she told me she didn't know how to use an ATM. She had, oh, he had always taken money out for both of them and just given her, you know, even though they both worked, they it all went into the same account. She just never had gone to an ATM. So I had to take her to show her how to use an ATM. And so I had this kind of, I think throughout this whole time between my father's death and my mother's death, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff for her. I'm managing all these things for her. And and I'm going, oh, I just don't want to be that. I want to know how to do, you know, I, I want to know how to do all those things myself. And if something were to happen to my husband, like I need to know I'd be okay. Um, and then all of a sudden at the end of her life, she's so brave and so strong and has decided that she's ready to go. And, and my mother didn't, was not religious. She did not believe in anything after death. And that too, I'm, I do. So it's, I just can't even fathom deciding to end it, not knowing, not thinking anything's coming after. Um, I just saw her in a new light that I had not seen her in, in a long time of just somebody who was very sure of herself, knew what she wanted and did something that was so brave. And to address something you said earlier about how we treat our pets better than we treat our humans. Um, it wasn't easy to stop drinking. It wasn't completely painless. Um, I wish I could say it was, but it wasn't. Um, she was so brave. Um, and um, I wish that there had been a pill that I could give her. It would have been easier and more humane. There's no doubt about that. Um, but um, I also, and as hard as it was, I feel like I gave her a gift. I felt like she needed someone there to advocate for her when she couldn't advocate for herself anymore, to advocate for her wishes. Um, she couldn't have done it alone. And, um, and she needed someone to hold her hand through it. And I was able in the end, even after all the you know, tough relationship stuff that we had, in the end, I was able to give her that. And it gives me a lot of peace. Yeah, and, and so much power in that. I, I think that's beautiful and, and um, inspires me. My mom has gone through with us kind of the plan of what she wants, and, and but my mom's in San Diego. My brother's there too, so naturally he'd be closer. That's hard when you're far away. Um, but I just think it's it's pretty obvious what the right thing is in most most situations. And and that when we do these interviews with elders, or, or I get to watch all our interviews that are private, but I get to watch them. And um, it's always about what you'll regret and um, at the end of people's life, and there's so much wisdom to that. And it's, it's, it's never the things like, you know, that we prioritize in everyday life is typically not the same things, um, certainly not materialistic. And it's mostly just kind of doing the right thing and being able to feel good about yourself as you move forward. And then also wanting your family to know that too, that you were so bad at communicating with our family that we love them. And I think that's generational too. 
is our generation certainly better than the past. And as you, you know, you're so much more independent than your mother. And I'm sure your girls are going to be even more independent than you. And don't be surprised when they move to Australia, wherever they're going to move for their year. Um, but that kind of stuff to me is is really important is the, the kind of lack of regrets as you move through. So saying that as we're wrapping up here, what do you see for your future as far as your career wise? How has that experience with your mom impacted where you want to go with your career? Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very happy that my mother was around for when this job started. Um, we are, you know, there is no, there's very little literature about elder abuse. Um, there's very little, um, you know, studied about it. There's no, uh, you know, there's the chem center, which is, um, at the children's hospital at Anschutz. Um, is kind of the leader in child abuse care um, as kind of set a standard for child abuse care. I didn't know this before, but for the for the nation. And um, and we are hoping to create the same standard for elder abuse care. Um, we're doing studies, we're researching, we're um, hopefully becoming experts so that we can talk more about this and what's happening and, um, and make it part of the norm, part of the conversation. Um, as a clinical provider to provider resource, we, um, we hope to educate and we have been educating physicians. We think that, you know, you were talking about how people are out in the community in Poland, but in here you don't see them as much. And I think that's true, but they're still going to their PCP or their their primary care provider, they're still going to their appointments and getting their medications. So I think this is kind of the ideal situation to identify these possible issues. We deal with caregiver neglect, um, physical abuse, financial abuse. Um, and I think your physician should be the one looking out for those things um, and identifying those things. I think it's the perfect opportunity. Um, so, tar you know, making sure it's part of the conversation and educating providers um, and hopefully creating a national standard so that we can they I've been I've been told we're about 40 years behind child abuse so um, I I'm so excited to see where this goes and I I can't wait to be a part of this change and to make sure that um, it's something that's being addressed Sounds like so, you're moving more towards the policy side of things to, you know, add, add on your bad A little meter. bit, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Even though that's not my, not my realm, um, but it's it happens. And need and may need to be your realm um, and people need advocates. And something that I did just as I'm thinking about the system, especially in America where everyone is putting their family in some sort of care or as opposed to taking care of them because we're not set up as a society to even be able to take care of them. Um, and again, our priorities certainly are not there. And I'd say that from my own perspective too, is I don't think I could take care of my mother in the way that she would need to be and, and have the patience for that and the, the skill set for that. And, um, and so, but then you have a system where you're also, it's incredibly expensive. So you're getting people who have to work for cheaper, who are doing insanely difficult work, but it's thought of as non-educated work. So there's that going on. Um, what are the, the physicians checking out? That's one of the solutions for it. Are there other solutions that can be, um, make a big impact? Um, what do you mean in terms of as elder far care as abuse, in general? As far, yeah, elder care and abuse specifically in it. 
Um, I don't know. Our system is just not built right now to support older adults in general. Colorado is actually like one of the top on the list for growing older adult population. Um, you know, nursing home care and other resources are very expensive. Um, you know, long-term care insurance, few people have it because it's crazy expensive. Um, uh, I, I think certainly keeping people in their community is more cost effective. I don't know why we're not putting more focus on that. Um, in terms of elder abuse, um, financial abuse is rampant. I think, you know, you hear on the news all the time, these, you know, scammers calling them for money and, um, you know, but I think it also becomes more complex. I think you have to think about caregiver stress, back to caregiver stress. Like I have a lot of cases where um, caregivers are overwhelmed and it becomes a abusive situation. Um, and is it, you know, what's the path you take? I mean, our path is if we provide more resources to this caregiver, what does the situation look like? Because not everybody has the privilege, like I did to hire caregivers for my mother. Um, not everyone's set up emotionally or physically to care for their parents. We live in a world where most of us live out of, you know, different places and live far long distance from our family. Um, but the people who can't afford that, who become caregivers because it's the only option they have, um, how do we support them better? Um, because I think that negates some of the issues we're already seeing with abuse and neglect. Um, so a big thing would be more resources for caregivers, more acknowledgement in our community of caregiving. Um, I think so many of us are part of that sandwich generation where we're, you may not be physically caring for a parent, but you're emotionally caring for them or you're advising them in some way that both have value. Um, I just don't think we talk about caregiving enough and how hard of a job it is. There should be more respite opportunities for caregivers, more places, you know, more opportunities for breaks and more just honoring the people who caregive for their families. I don't think we talk about it enough. Yeah, I, I've never thought about it. And you are so right, because you're also having, um, I'm, I'm not sure, but probably a large percentage of caregivers are immigrants in this country and are dealing with being away from their own families and a new culture and dealing with this at low wages. Um, even if you're not, you're bringing everything that you have to deal with in life into this really tough situation um, into a person that it is a job for you too. And so like the expectation that you never have time off because things are set up as profitable businesses and they need to be run that way. Um, gets really tricky too. So we definitely, I agree with that. It's kind of a rising tide lifts all boats. Like we need to do better for all of society so that, that we can solve these problems because it's not going to get better as far as aging population in this country and, and yeah. or the lack of resources to deal with an aging population. Uh, I mean, we're all going to get old, right? <laughs> what would you want for yourself? You know, what do you hope for as you grow older? Um, why wouldn't you you know, give to others who are experiencing that now, which you hope to um, experience someday, you know, um, if we're all lucky enough to get old, right? Um, so, um, I, you know, I do think a lot of this is cultural um, and how we view older adults and, and our, our quest to always be young and um, look younger and I don't know. Um, 
there's this inability to identify the fact that you're going to get there <laughs> someday, like hopefully if you're lucky, right? Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, again, making it more, if, anytime you make something like that part of the conversation, like we're making elder abuse part of the conversation, we're making death a part of the conversation, doesn't it become less scary? Doesn't it become more manageable? Does, when we talk about caregiving, like, does, isn't that partly honoring it? Um, I just think it's so important to talk about things. And that's why I'm here today <laughs> because it's terrifying as this is for me. Um, and I'm certainly not as eloquent as some of your other guests have been. I, I feel like if we don't talk about it, then people feel more alone and it's not normalized. And we all, I mean, I hate to be so I hope we all lose our parents first, right? I mean, that's the natural progression. We all, at some point, hopefully, will lose our parents before, you know, because the alternative is that they've lost us, right? Um, and uh, and if we talk about what it's like to lose a parent and how we cope with it, or what it's like to caregive for a parent, um, I think a lot of people are going, "Oh yeah, I'm doing that too. Let's talk about it. Let's normalize it. Let's support each other." Um, but we don't, we don't talk about death enough and we don't talk about caregiving enough. And we certainly don't talk about elder abuse enough. And you're modeling it for your own children. Um, and I want to push back on you and stop apologizing for yourself. You are, you are very well-spoken. You have an incredible story and an incredible value to, to share with everyone. And so that's, I've got a new thing that I, I guess I should do with, with our, um, our guests at the end of this conversation is, and we'll end with this, because um, you've been you've been wonderful, and I was going to ask how we can support you in your work. So I guess I should ask you that first. It sounds like having these conversations with your loved ones is one way to support kind of what you're thinking of here. Is there other ways to um, support you in any other way? No, um, <laughs> I don't know. I um, I think just don't be afraid to have the tough conversations with your friends or your family. Um, not just about you know, what are you, what are your wishes towards the end of your life? Like we've talked about, but also, um, you know, why was today a hard day? You know, um, I, I, I find that I scare a lot of people <laughs> because, you know, my mom just died. I work in elder abuse. Like it's a little scary. Um, but I am so blessed to have good friends who, and, and, and a wonderful family that, check in and are able to talk about the tough stuff. And I think, yeah, I mean, like acknowledge that it's hard, acknowledge that it makes you uncomfortable, but, um, but there's so much value in checking in with others. So that's, that would mean a lot to me. <laughs> and so much growth that comes from that. All right. So here's, how I'm going to, I'm going to finish this is I want you to own your badassness now. So I want you to finish our conversation here by saying, I'm Sarah Cox and I am a badass. Okay. I'm Sarah Fox and I am a badass. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sarah. You are a badass. You have a great day. You too.